Numbers are an incredibly powerful form of magic. Um, we can start with the one. Um, we, we, we all are seeking the one. In, in physics, they're trying to find that one particle, that the God particle, or that explains all of everything. And we're always trying to find the one. Hey guys, welcome to the Brain and Brand Show. I'm Timothy Maurice. Thanks so much for choosing this episode. And if you're following this seven part series, you're going to enjoy this fourth installment. Today, I'm bringing back Dr. Daniel Z. Lieberman, who featured in episode one, and the conversation was so well received, I reached back out to Dan to explore parts of his book, Spellbound, that we didn't get a chance to touch on in episode one. If you haven't already listened to episode one of this series, I encourage you to go back before listening to this one. Today, Dan and I explore the supernatural secrets of the unconscious mind the power of fairy tales, numbers, and what he calls the magical instinct. Dr. Lieberman is a professor and vice chair of clinical affairs in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at George Washington University. Dr. Lieberman is a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association, and he has published over 50 scientific reports on behavioral science. Enjoy Dr. Daniel Z. Lieberman, the author of Spellbound, Modern Science, ancient magic, and the hidden potential of the unconscious mind. Dr. Dan Lieberman, welcome to the Brain and Brand Show. Thank you so much for having me. Should I say welcome back? <laughs> That's right. It's my second go around. Absolutely. Our feedback on the first episode was really wonderful. I think I've gotten several people, even even a bookstore, recommend, you know, trying to reach out to distribute your book and people wanting to buy your book. So that's always really, really good. So I thought we could build on our first conversation, which really looked at setting the foundation, understanding the power of the unconscious mind and shift a little bit to talk about the supernatural. Can we do that? That sounds like a terrific idea. So let's talk a little bit about the magical instinct. Break down the magical instinct. All right. So the magical instinct is our natural tendency to view the world, to view the things that happen to us in a magical way. And um, it's something we tend to repress, you know, as moderns, because we know that it doesn't really align with the uh, actual facts of the matter. But I think that by doing so, we make a mistake. And I think the reason is that our brains are tools. They're tools for understanding the world. They're tools for us having success, getting the things that we want. And every tool has its own way of working. And the rational part of the mind might not necessarily like this, uh, but the brain seems to work best when it allows itself to understand the world in a magical way. Hey, what, what, what is this, where does this instinct come from? Do you think it comes from the fact that we spent most of our evolutionary background in the dark? So we heard sounds, we heard, we, we weren't sure about so much. And, you know, let me, yeah, let me just put that question back to you. Where do you think it comes from? Yeah, I think that that's, that's certainly one possibility. I think that another possibility is that it comes from the fact that so much of our brain is dedicated to processing social interactions. 
in some ways, that's one of the key elements that have made us successful as a species. And there's even um, something called the social brain theory, which posits that being able to efficiently process social interactions is the reason why humans have such large brains. And, and if I could, it's worth pointing out that having a large brain comes at a huge cost. It comes at a cost uh, for women uh, when they have children. Uh, the larger the uh, offspring's head is, uh, the greater the rate of um, mortality for the mother during childbirth. The other cost is that brains use tons and tons of energy. And so uh, it could easily put somebody on the edge of starvation over that edge and kill them. But um, the payoff in terms of being able to cooperate effectively with large groups was so large that it was worth it. And as a result, we tend to interpret everything in a social way. And that makes us attribute the things that go on in our lives, the things that are probably happening to some large degree by random chance to some conscious entity that is making it happen. And that's where the magical instinct is coming from. Let's, let's give a few examples of this magic that we're speaking about, you know, so that everybody can be clear that we understand. Is it, you know, just break down a few examples. Sure. So uh, one example is our tendency, largely unnoticed, I think, to see living spirits all around us. And uh, I'm not sure if we had a chance to talk about this last time, about the way in which inanimate objects over time become friends. If you think about things uh, that you've owned for a very, very long time, um, in many ways, they're no longer atoms and molecules. Uh, we treat them more in a social context than we do in a strictly materialistic context. So, for example, if you've got an old sweatshirt uh, that you've loved since college and, um, you know, maybe your girlfriend is saying, oh, my God, get rid of that ratty thing. It, it, it's a piece of garbage. A and you're like, no. Uh, this is very important to me. I, I, I tried this on a friend once and he said, well, it's just because it has memories associated with it. But I don't buy it because your college yearbook probably has more memories because it's got actual photographs, but it's not as important as the sweatshirt. And the reason is that through long association, the sweatshirt has become imbued with spirit. And we now have a social relationship with it rather than just an objective relationship with it. Wow. That explains so much. I, I read a study once where participants wore a Hitler sweatshirt and they were told only afterwards that it was actually, it, it belonged to Hitler. And the researchers studied what happened in the brain when they were told this. And it's very, very interesting how what you're explaining explains so much about how the stress levels rose in the brain, the amygdala start firing intensely, high levels of cortisol was raised, stress chemicals. And, you know, initially I thought it was just the story um, around the sweatshirt and the association of the story and how that then linked to their personal story and how they wanted to get that story off their personal story quickly. But it seems like it's that spiritual side of it goes deeper into it. Why do you think in that study 
there was such a reaction in people's brains, even when they were told that the sweatshirt had been cleaned multiple times. Yes. Well, you know, we see that phenomenon over and over again. And some people are more susceptible to that effect than others. There was a study in which they introduced somebody um, in a laboratory and, and they said, oh, this person accidentally stepped in dog excrement earlier today. But don't worry, he thoroughly cleaned his shoes and, and everything is fine. And then you could estimate to what degree people were um, had a tendency towards magical thinking by how far away they sat from him uh, when it came down to wow. select chairs. So this is something we do commonly. And I think it's useful to, to look at the opposite. What is the opposite of magical thinking? Well, the answer to that would be materialism. Um, to say that there is nothing in the world but atoms, molecules, and energy particles, such as photons. So going back to your Hitler sweater example, a materialistic approach to that sweater would be, well, you know, these are atoms and molecules. Um, you know, I assume it's been dry cleaned, uh, and there's no residue of Hitler on it, whatever difference that, that would make. Um, yeah. Why on earth should it matter that an evil man wore this sweater decades ago? Um, and the funny answer is, well, well, I think we can say logically it doesn't make any difference at all, um, logically. But the funny answer is that if you take that illogical approach, if you take that magical approach and say it does matter, uh, his, his spirit somehow lingers in this sweater, the brain functions better. And that's the strange thing, that we know it's not true. But by adopting an approach we know is not true, we function better. I mean, that even explains why cheating is such... A, a painful experience for most people. It's like, even though there's no residue of that person still on me, it's possible that their spirit is now dividing our, our, our relationship. I mean, this is really interesting for me because I've never thought of it this way. And I think after reading, especially the first part of your book and getting to the second part, it feels as though that as much as, as much as I am aware of this stuff cognitively, it still feels fresh and new to me. And are you finding this with your book, Spellbound, that for a lot of people that this is new for them to frame it this way? It is. I think that um, a lot of people have heard of the unconscious, but it's very difficult to think about it because it's so foreign to, to imagine that that there's this overwhelming force inside of our heads that we have no control over. And so if you can get people to actually think about it, think about what it means and, and, and try to come to terms with their own experience of their own uncontrollable forces within their brain, they say, yeah, this is different. This is uncomfortable, but this is important. I mean, we couldn't go to a, Movie. I mean, I, I know in this part of the world, I'm in Southern Africa, that actors often report getting attacked in public because people can't separate story, spirit, logic. Are they woven in together? Is there part of the brain where sort of the emotional dynamic of the story and the logic overlap? Or is it just the brain is dynamic and that they are 
sort of intersecting in a particular way or am I looking at this wrong? No, I think you're absolutely on target. I would even go so far as to say that the brain cannot function without making stories. And let, let me give you an example of that. Let's just take what's going on right now. Uh, without even knowing it, we're making stories about what's happening. So, for example, I- I'm, I'm wondering, how am I doing right now? What are people going to think when they hear this podcast? And, and I, 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 I make assumptions about that. I think about what led up to this moment. What are the things that I did in the past that led me to be here right now? And then I also think about the future. What, what, what's the outcome of this going to be? What is it going to lead to? Now, as a psychiatrist, I can tell you that that the answer to those three questions, the present, the past, and the future, the story that I make up is going to be wrong. My assessment of the present, what people are thinking of me, is distorted. My, my assumptions about what led up to this, what, what were the factors that led you to invite me to come back, those are not going to be right. My predictions about the future, what's going to happen as a result of way off base, as everybody knows, things rarely turn out the way that we expect them to. So I know the story I'm telling myself is wrong, but I have to tell it anyway. Because without some kind of story, I can't process the information. I can't go through life accepting things as a series of disjointed facts, as a series of random events. I've got to weave them together with meaning, even though I know that the accuracy of that meaning is probably way off. Now, now we want our stories to be accurate. We want them to conform to reality. And I, I think that as we, as we get older, as we become more experienced, as we become more educated, the stories we tell ourselves about reality match up more closely with the actual reality. But I think that we have to understand that matching with reality is only one of two important criteria that we should use to judge the quality of the stories we tell. The other important criteria is how well does it match up with our brains? And and, and let me give you an example. Um, I tell myself a story about this desk that I'm sitting at. And the story I tell myself is it's solid. Now, you and I know that's not true. It's not solid at all. Uh, quantum physics tells us it's a haze of ghostly probabilities with absolutely no solidity at all. That's the reality. But I'm not going to change the story to match with reality because treating wooden objects as solid works much better from the point of view of the way my brain evolved. And, and, and magical thinking is the same way. It's like solid tables. That's the best way to navigate the world, even though it's not actually true. Wow. I mean, you mentioned in your book this quote from Daniel Kahneman about, you know, if the, the more clear the story is, the more confident we are in our belief system. Do you think the neural, the underpinning of this is that to think about the complexity of the truth requires too much energy output that it's too much of a tax on the brain. So it becomes easier just to believe in the story. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a great way of thinking about it. Right. Um, we, we, we have rules of thumb 
Um, we have, we have likely stories that work well enough for our needs because, yeah, as you point out, it's impossible to process every single detail with our, in our environment. And, and so we take shortcuts and, and that leads us to the stories. You know, some of the, the most, if you think about numbers, you think about fairy tales, you think about so much of what you've written about, which do you think are more universal when you look around the world, whether it's in you know, the Western hemisphere, whether it's wherever in Asia, which magic do you think the, in almost the entire world is susceptible to? It's a great question. Um, it, it's a very, very difficult question. I think that it's probably fairy tales. It, it's probably stories about the role of magic in our lives. And I think that, um, I think that fairy tales is too narrow. If you think about almost any story at all, we're going to see the role of magic. Uh, for example, I happen to love Charles Dickens. I don't know if you've ever read any Charles Dickens. Um, yes. his stories are so enormously satisfying. One of the things that happens in Dickens stories is that there is often coincidence. Um, long lost relatives show up. Um, things of that nature. Uh, people have chance meetings that, that, that solves the problems and brings the uh, plot to a happy conclusion. Um, a lot of those, um, prob- a lot of those coincidences are very improbable, but they don't bother the reader. And the reason is that we expect these kinds of things to happen in life. We expect life to have meaning. We expect things to work out. And we kind of have this idea that there is this force that is driving events in a rational way, that things are not just 100% random and arbitrary. And so I think that the tendency not to view life as random and arbitrary is the most universal form of magical thinking. I see. Makes sense. Which explains, you know, when we when, if someone says, I am a Capricorn or a Libra, you know, people tend to really, I mean, people organize their entire dating life. They organize whether they're going to get a job by this. You know, it seems to be an extraordinary force that people, and I think because people break down, you know, your, your, (laughs) they, they break it down so clearly, it's easier to believe that I'm an Aries, right? It's easier. Do you believe, when is your birthday? I'm February 20th. I'm a Pisces. And do you believe you're you, you are aligned to these traits of a Pisces? Well, let me put it this way. Uh, I once spent many, many hours combing through the scientific literature, uh, looking for studies that had tested the assumptions of astrology because I found it to be so absolutely compelling. Uh, I, I look at the description of Pisces and I say, oh my gosh, that describes me to a T. Um, and, and so it's so incredibly compelling. I said, there's got to be something behind this. I got to figure out what it is. I want to write my next book about this, the scientific justification for astrology. There's nothing there. Uh, it, other, <laughs> people, people have studied it because it's so compelling and, and no study has ever found anything. And, and they've done some good ones. Um, some scientists work with some uh, professional astrologers. Uh, th- there's a professional astrology organization in the United States. 
And so they looked for um, the, the best, the most authoritative people. And they said, let's put together some personality measurements, some personality questionnaires. We'll give them out at random. We'll let you read these and you try to guess um, what sign of the Zodiac they are. Uh, and so they let the astrologers actually choose the personality measurements to give the astrologers every possible advantage they could, and they didn't do any better than chance. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's completely yeah. fascinating. You know, I want to shift a bit and talk a little bit about how do we apply this to leadership, how we apply it to branding, for example. That's why this is called the Brain and Brand Show. If you think about brands that use this sort of pull on the magical instinct to get loyalty, to inspire people to feel more convinced. Can you think of any brands that have done so well that you are like you've bought into it and you're loyal to it yourself? Yes. I think that um, any brand that has successfully promoted their logo to the point where it is no longer ink on paper are using magical thinking. So, um, you know, if you were to give me uh, a shirt and, um, you know, my wife has re- uh, recently been buying Supreme shirts for my son. Um, the, the, this is a company that they put out limited edition and, and it's yes. so cool, you, you know, and um, you give you two shirts. One has a Supreme logo. The other doesn't. They're identical in every other way, the cut, the style, the color, everything. You're going to pay three, four, five times as much for the shirt with the Supreme logo on it. And, uh, that is a magical success. And, um, you know, are you wasting your money? You know, you're paying for less than half a cent of ink. Are you wasting your money by, by paying so much more? And the answer is no, because the magic works. As a result of having that magical logo, you enjoy the shirt more. You take more satisfaction in it. You actually value it more. And in many cases, it actually has a resale value uh, because everybody buys into this magic. So I think that's an example of true magic. Um, creating satisfaction and joy and value essentially out of a story. And if you were to think about how to get more out of the relationship with your son, if I'm supreme, how could you intensify this sort of magical story building to ensure that people are, you know, you know, captivated by the magic? Like, what are some basic tips if you were, if they hired you as an advisor to Supreme or any other brand, what would you say? It's a difficult question, you know, and I think it's difficult because another word for the unconscious mind is the uncontrollable mind. And, you know, that is that, um, that we want to control it because it's so powerful. Um, it, it's so influential, but we, we really can't. And so I think that in some ways that if you want to be a scientist of magic, in some ways you have to be like an astronomer. Uh, astronomers run experiments that are strictly observational. Uh, they can't reach out and intervene in their objects of study. They can't take two black holes and shove them together to see what happens when they collide. Uh, they have to wait for it to happen. And so I think that in many cases, it's about knowing that this happens in people and just paying attention. Are, are we seeing a magical effect? 
Um, if not, let's try something different. A Jungian writer, Marie-Louise von France, once said, you never find the water of life in the same place twice. And I think that what she's talking about is that feeling of being alive. You know, we've all had the experience of saying, oh my gosh, I've never felt more alive. And that's what we live for. That that feels better than anything else. And we we get echoes of that feeling in all kinds of magical experiences. Um, when I get a Supreme t-shirt, I feel a little bit more alive than I do than if I just wear one I bought from Target. But we don't know where the water of life is going to come from next time. You know, you have a wonderful experience and you say to your friends, oh my God, we've got to do this again. And then you do it again and it's not the same experience at all. And so I think that part of being successful with the unconscious mind is having humility to know that it has a mind of its own so to speak, and that we need to respect it and we can't treat it like a servant. Uh, we've got to work with it, not controlling it like a tyrant. And I think that's, for me, it's encouraging for if you're in a relationship, you've got a team. I just came off a tour with an insurance company where over six days on day one, we were in the mountains called Drakensberg. And we left there and we went to this communal sort of sandy area. And then we went to the beach and each day we had these different experiences and it was magical. I mean, at the end, we could have easily gone to a boardroom and done the exact same training, etc. But he wanted to create a magical effect for them to explore the higher dimensions of their soul. And I asked this leader, I said, how did you justify the expenditure to the board? Because... There's zero logic behind this. I mean, you probably spent 10 times more uh, than you would have spent if you just went and put everybody in a boardroom at the office. But when we left, he said that I want people to go on a journey to explore the depths of themselves. And I couldn't get that by putting them in a boardroom. And I'm going to recommend that they get this book because I think he's onto something. I think if he can go a little bit deeper with himself, with himself and really understand these principles, he may be able to sell it to the board. <laughs> yeah, I think that's brilliant. Yeah, and I think it points to the fact that even though we can't control the unconscious mind directly, we can do it indirectly. We can try to meet the needs of the unconscious mind and hope that in return it will help us out. So have the meeting in that beautiful environment that, that's natural and evocative for the unconscious mind. If you want to make your brand more magical, read magical stories. Try to cultivate a friendly relationship with your unconscious mind. And you can't command it to give you good inspiration. But if you're more friendly with it, if you meet its needs, you increase the likelihood that it could do that. You know, I have to tell I haven't told anyone this that my full name is Timothy Maurice Webster. All of my names have seven digits. And I've been thinking about it a lot recently about thinking about branding my own sort of name around the number seven and the symbolism of numbers. Let's wrap up this conversation with talking about numbers and the magic and how numbers and all these impact and influence our unconscious mind. Numbers are an incredibly powerful form of magic. 
um, we can start with the one. Um, th- there's the old joke about the uh, Buddhist monk who tells the hot dog vendor, make me one with everything. Um, we, we all are seeking the one. In, in physics, they're trying to find that one particle, that the God particle, or, that explains all of everything. And we're always trying to find the one. Two is division. Uh, we talk about uh, being a double agent, um, being two-faced, duplicitous, all of these negative things. I, I can go through all of the integers, and, and we can come up with dozens and dozens of things that are embedded in our language, embedded in our culture. Uh, seven, your number, is called the magic number. Um, and seven is the number of growth. Um, there, there are seven heavens that we progress through up to the seventh heaven. And uh, there are seven days in the week that we progress through. So, you know, when you ask me what's the most magical thing, I was a little tempted to go with numbers <laughs> simply because it, it's so pervasive in our language, in our culture, in, in everything we do. And, and it largely goes unnoticed. Dan, let me just say, I I know we have to close this conversation, but I want to say I appreciate the energy and the magic you bring to these conversations. I appreciate the way you think about uh, the unconscious mind. Is there any closing comment you would like to have to the audience or anybody who's, you know, listened to both episode one or two or only this episode about exploring the magic within themselves and around them? Any final comments? You know, I, I just like to sort of emphasize that um, I think that the most important thing in life is that feeling of being alive. Um, when you say, I've never felt more alive before in my life, we sometimes call them magic moments. And, and so I would just like to, people to take a step back, step back from the pursuit of money, from the pursuit of prestige, from whatever it is they're pursuing, and think about what is it really in life that gives you the most meaning, the most pleasure? What are the most profound moments of your life? I think they might find that it has a lot to do with magic. Dr. Dan Lieberman, thank you for joining us again on the Brain and Brand Show.